0: Hello, and welcome to the It's a Wonderful Life episode of Slate Money Goes to the Movies. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios, I'm here with my colleague Emily Peck. Hello, hello. Hello, and we are going to talk about It's a Wonderful Life, which is obviously a movie about banking, but it's also a movie about Christmas, it's a movie about community... We are going to talk about algorithms, amazingly. We are going to talk about intersectionality. But actually, we're just going to have a lot of fun talking about Jim Stewart and George Bailey and what happens in this movie. Emily, who's our guest?
1: The wonderful Kathy O'Neill, the former co-host of Slate Money herself.
0: Kathy O'Neill is back from an undisclosed location. So she is going to be joining us to talk about It's a Wonderful Life coming up on Slate Money Goes to the Movies. Kathy, you chose a classic Christmas movie. <laughs> you can't you can't shrug and, and, and throw your I'm hands feeling. in the air on a podcast, Kathy. No one can see you doing that.
2: <laughs> oh, oh, oh right. No, no. I it wasn't a shrug. It was more like a a smug smile um, Listen, I mean, this is not only one of the my favorite movies. Um I would say it's like up there. Um, it makes me cry every single time, including when I was preparing for this uh, this morning. If you see like <laughs> I, I cry eyes, that's why. It's curious financially to me. It it like, it always sparks my curiosity and interest, and I never had, you know, the time or the reason to really delve at all into like the the storyline, the underlying economic storyline.
0: Like this is obviously uh, basically a remake of Dickens' Christmas Carol, which had basically nothing to do with banking as, far as i think the original like book or script that was optioned also had nothing to do with banking the decision to make our hero the custodian i guess you would call it of of this little building society i think happened like quite a few ways into revisions do you think that the fact that this movie has you know it won lots of oscars it has become this much beloved favorite of all good thinking people. Uh, do you think the fact that it has that bank at the heart of it, or actually two banks at the heart of it, is part of that? Or is, did, does that not actually matter?
2: Oh, I think it matters a lot. I mean, look, I think it's all about uh, the concept of what's what's worthwhile. Like, what is a man's worth? Um, and it's constantly contrasting the concept of money as a way of measuring yourself versus other other currencies, other social types of currencies, like family and friends. So I think the the fact that it's about a bank or about a, a system of banks really is critically important to the story.
0: Spoiler alert, the 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 great finale of this movie um, seems to be saying that um, family and friends are basically fungible with money, that so long as you have family and friends, they'll come through and, and give you $8,000 if you need it.
2: Yeah, I mean... <laughs> Say that again, because I, I'm a little confused. What you mean by "fan, family, and friends are fungible"?
0: Well, I mean, like, so there is a long-standing tradition in movies, and we've talked about this on this in this late like, money goes to the movies many times in the past, um, where the path to redemption and and having a good life and having a happy ending involves giving away a large amount of money that, on some level, you I don't know whether you deserve it or not, or whether, like, but wh- however you come into the large sum of money, that's not the happy ending. The happy ending is when you give away the large sum of money and then you have the happy ending. Like, you know, we, we had that in what was that terrible Woody Harrelson movie? But yeah, that happens all the time where he plays an architect in Decent Proposal. That was it. It's a standard trope in movies. And once you start looking for it, you see it everywhere. And this movie does that a couple of times we we have uh, our hero george bailey um first of all takes his tuition money and gives it to his brother so that you know because he needs to take over the bank then he takes his honeymoon money and and gives it to his shareholders to save his bank and so like that theme of the way you achieve nobility in this life is by giving away money rather than hoarding it, In you know, a la Mr. Potter, the evil banker, um, runs through the movie up until the very end. And then at the very end, the reason the very end is so happy is because he asks for $8,000, or his friends ask for 8000 you know, have a kind of whip round for him and say, like, can we come up with $8,000 for good old George? And they seem to come up with, like, some great multiple of that and there's this huge pile of money sitting in front of him on the table and um no one is claiming any of it and it's just gifted it's not even a loan. that is like now we're now we're happy at the end because he just has all the money he could ever want wow. oh, George it's a miracle it's, it's a miracle it's Who, who's gonna come daddy who's daddy I don't know. come in
2: Uncle.
1: Mary, in here, George. Yeah, George, yeah. George. Yeah. it? Yeah. Like oh, yeah. oh, like yeah. yeah. So yeah. many yeah. Mary did it, George. Yeah. Mary did it. She told yeah. some people you yeah. were in trouble, with it. they scattered all over town collecting money. Didn't ask yeah. any yeah. questions. Just the George in trouble. Tell me, right. you know, what it is What is this? Another run on the bank. Here George. Merry Christmas. There
0: we are. The lime farms on the right.
2: I mean, and they're mostly ones, so it's actually not clear to me that it, it is eight thousand dollars in total. Um, but then, when like whoever it is, the warden or somebody rips up, you know, his uh, his the, the the little piece of paper that says he's going to be arrested, whatever that's called, um, then then it becomes clear that he's in the that he's he's off he's off of the charges.
0: Yeah, and and his friend, the the plastics millionaire you know, comes through with like 25 grand or something. Yeah.
2: Um, very, very from posh. London. Um, yeah. You know, agreed, agreed. But I would just frame it a little bit differently. I, I actually think the entire movie is a question, is sort of examining the, the nature of what money is really for. You know, agreed that he gives away the money uh, for college to his brother. He gives the money from his honeymoon to stop the the bank run during the depression. I think that what we're supposed to understand from that is that, like, he had an opportunity to be selfish, not is not in a sort of rude, terrible way, not selfish, like horrible, and uh, but to do something for himself, you know, for an experience for himself.
0: And, and most explicitly, he turns down twenty thousand dollars a year from from that's Mr. Great, Potter yeah, to that's stay a on example. two thousand right. dollars a year.
2: And he has these choices offered to him: Do you want to be? Uh, do you want to be it to be about you, or do you want it to be about the community? Um, and he consistently chooses the community cause he, cause, and, and so the, the, the point of the, the movie, I will argue, um, is that even though we all need money and that is completely clear and it is contextualized, um, it is not about money. I mean, one of the sort of, uh, first things that Clarence, the angel says to, um, anyone in the, in the entire, well, the actual living people besides, you know the the angels the other angels in god um the first thing he says is we don't have money in in heaven and so that's that's supposed to set us up to be like oh they have a different currency and indeed like that's the whole point right the whole point is that it is they have bitcoin it's definitely not bitcoin felix calm down
1: you'll help me won't you sure sure how by letting me help you only I mean, one way you can help me you don't happen to have eight thousand
0: bucks on you dude. oh no no we don't use money in heaven oh yeah that's <laughs> right i keep forgetting <laughs> comes in pretty handy down here bub oh touch, touch, touch. <laughs> uh, i found it out a little late i'm worth more dead than a lie now look you mustn't talk like i that. want to
2: give a shout out to my son who also watched this movie and talked to me at length about it he's studying economics. So he's interested in this. And he put it into two different historical contexts. Cause as he pointed out, it's like where the movie set, which is starts in the depression and goes up to past the war. And then where the movie's made, which is post the war. And he made the point that like a bunch of, you know, World War II veterans came home with, with like all these ideas of sort of positive ideas of communism uh and sort of anti-capitalism and you think there's a lot of that going to our earlier point felix of like this movie is in my opinion a movie about what is the real purpose of money versus community like what what do we owe to each other versus what do we owe to ourselves
0: certainly if you look at what happened in the uk after the war that was you know The the first election after the war, Churchill gets kicked out. The Labour government gets voted in. The National Health Service gets created. There is this move towards socialism, um, which I guess, you know, the closest thing you would have in the US would be the New Deal, which was before the war. But this movie was made, like, more or less during the war, at the end of the war. It came out in 1946. So the war is super fresh in people's minds but yeah so this question of 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 money and the role of money in the movie and how central the role of money is to the movie i think it's really super interesting most obviously this whole story is dichotomous right you have the good money person who's george bailey and then you have the bad money person who's mr potter and they both run banks except for george bailey doesn't actually run a bank He runs a building and loan it. He runs a lender. Um, So you can borrow money from his institution. Um, He does have depositors. So there can be a run on the bank, but they're not depositors like we think about depositors in this age of like, um, you know, FDIC insurance and demand deposits and checking accounts. Um, You know, you, you get shares um, if you deposit money and you, it's basically like a, it's a weird thing. And, and the reason why Uncle Billy is going to the bank bank to deposit the building society's money is because the building society isn't actually a bank. And if you if you want to actually deal in cash, you do that at the bank. And that distinction um, was a really important distinction back in the 1940s, but it's completely disappeared now. It just doesn't exist. I mean, it does to a little degree, I guess... Um, there are lots of lenders who don't take deposits. There aren't places, it's still very rare. I've, I've come across it like once or twice in the in the realm of like commercial mortgages and stuff where you'd get like shares in lieu of a deposit account. So that was a fascinating like look into what was considered like good and noble and what was considered bad. And what's considered good and noble is basically not a depository institution and a depository institution is evil.
1: Yeah, it was, it was really interesting. I was I was amazed to find how much this movie was a movie about good banker bad banker cuz you know I remember watching it when I was a kid and that didn't matter to me at all and I was thinking about how like the um the di- the divide between these two doesn't really matter now because the way mortgage lending is well this movie this all happened before the US government started backing mortgages I believe right and so Going forward from there, you didn't need to rely on like good guy George Bailey to help you buy a house in Bailey Park. You didn't have to rely on the nice banker man to get you your house with all your children, the Martini family in Bailey Park. You could just get a loan backed, if you're a a white person, backed by the federal government. And um, banking sort of moved on from like this thing that individual guys do or help you with, right? Not necessarily for the better.
2: So one of the reasons I chose this movie was because I am confused by this good bank, bad bank thing. And, you know, like, I guess it was called a building and loan that, that George Bailey was running with his uncle, but it certainly reminded me of the saving and loan banks. Um, Like, and, and I know that they had so many, so much trouble in the eighties and, you know, probably they were just as corrupt and greedy and looking for a, um, you know, a high, a high return um, as anything else. But um, as as I learned in researching this, like, in part, that's because they, they were not put given as much regulation post the depression, as the uh, deposit banks were. Um, So the deposit banks had the FDIC insurance that prevented the runs that we saw. And as you say, Emily, that we had the um, guaranteed for white people um, mortgages. And by the way, speaking of white people, can we just Acknowledge just the problematic nature of the the maid um in the story um in sort of every single scene that she appeared. it was embarrassing and, and very cringy
0: yeah the, the the one person who had no chance of getting a mortgage or a house of her own from <laughs> the building and learn
2: she couldn't
1: even sit down at the table with them to eat. That was a joke,
0: but I mean she was you know not to get too sort of intersectional about this but um but I think back in those days it was actually impossible for women to get a mortgage, whether they were black or white.
1: Yeah. No mortgages, no credit, nothing.
2: I also, you know, speaking of cringy moments, the the horrifying alternative reality for Mary, the who was the <laughs> wife, um, uh, was to become a librarian. Um and I was just like, wow, you know, she Wow, that's the worst case scenario, I
0: suppose. And the vibrant nightlife of Bedford Falls was like just Sodom and Gomorrah, and terrible. <laughs> Pretty good to me. Club. It looked fun to me. I was like that that bit that bit looks fine to me. Yeah.
1: Yeah, well Mary's really the unsung hero of the film, right? I mean, while George is feeling sorry for himself looking out over the Bedford Falls bridge or whatever. Mary's like rustling up the town to save him. She she had four kids, but is also remodeled the entire dump haunted
2: house. Like she's really the gem here. And I don't, I don't know. But I want to go back to Emily's statement about there is no distinction. I really actually think Potter is Warren Buffett, you know, Warren Buffett with his empire of trailer parks. <laughs> Um don't you think that's appropriate as an analogy? Like it it's not that we don't have uh it's not that we don't have like um potters anymore. It's just that they're not they're not considered mainstream bankers.
1: It's funny that you say that because Potter is such a villain in this film. Like he is just like the worst person. He I think George Bailey's dad before he dies says like there's something wrong with him. He's sick inside all this badness. Um, And then in my like Google research for this segment, I came across like um, the House Un-American Activities Commission's report on It's a Wonderful Life, you know, because it's obviously this communist movie, they think, which I mean, are they wrong? No, but in the in the report, there's all this language about how they could have made the banker seem nice and better and more like altruistic and how it was like a warped version of what a banker is supposed to be, Um, which I guess ultimately that's how we think about Warren Buffett, right? He's like, just like you're saying, Kathy, he's like this folksy, folksy guy. So if like Potter in 2021 would also be this just folksy, folksy banker guy.
0: Those of us who are old with long memories will remember that Warren Buffett had a stint as the chairman of a bank. Specifically, of Salomon Brothers, which was busy um, inventing mortgage-backed securities. I think roughly at the same time. Uh-huh. And um, I think there's. I think what's interesting about Potter is that he is avaricious in a way that bankers are, still are to this day in the popular imagination. But really, um, nowadays you generally find only in finance rather than banking and i think one of the big things that you really notice watching this movie is the fact that outside a handful of credit unions this kind of personal relationship banking with normal people doesn't really exist anymore and if you walk into your local branch of chase or bank of america um there is no lending officer who can basically say you're a good person, I believe in you, here's a mortgage. It's all done by some algorithm somewhere. And uh, that has pros and cons, right? Like on the one hand, if it's all based on the you're a good person, I trust you, then it is all at the whims of humans who are inherently racist and generally consciously or unconsciously uh, biased in all manner of respects, but Kathy will be the first to tell us that the algorithms can be biased too. It just—it's a question of like choosing your poison, right?
2: Yeah, that's a really interesting point, Felix. Um, this idea that like I will personally vouch for my friend who should have a real home, and I happen to feel that way, versus Potter who across town doesn't feel that way, wants to keep them in the slums. Um, I think he called them garlic eaters—the Italians that were moving into um, to Bailey. Bailey Park. That was the way it worked. And to our point earlier, like women weren't allowed to get mortgages, black people weren't. And that was just sort of the guards, the guardians of that system were the bankers, or the folks like George Bailey, if you don't want to call him a banker, that was explicitly outlawed in legislation in the 60s. And FICO scores were invented as a response to that legislation to make things to make it possible for bankers to still make loans. So FICO scores were a reaction to um, FICRA and ECOA, Fair Credit Reporting Act and Equal Credit Opportunity Act. Then once FICO scores were invented, they got scaled up massively because now you have this automated fast system that seems really efficient um, that was, was explicitly built to be legal. Um, and once you had that legal system for for denying people loans, it was it was scaled beyond anybody's imagination, and for uses outside of loans, um, very quickly. And to Felix's point, nowadays we don't even have, well, we we still have FICO scores, of course, everybody knows that, but we also have all sorts of families of other kinds of credit lo- credit ratings. Um, associated to FICO scores, very correlated but not not exactly the same. Built by every lender um, and every fintech company that has been invented um, since since then. So it's 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 a huge industry, and it you no no longer see that person to person thing, which is good and bad.
1: Why is it bad? Because it. A- First, when you start thinking about it, you're like, oh, it's so nice. George Bailey knows Ernie, and he gives Ernie a loan, even though Mr. Potter wouldn't give him the loan because he knows him, and that's more important than any like track record. But then you think about it for 10 seconds, and you're like, wait, you could be giving loans to your friends. They could turn out not to be able to pay them. And what a messy situation that becomes. Like, No one wants to loan money to their friends. That's how you lose friends, I would imagine. So- isn't it a good thing that this system doesn't exist
2: anymore it is often a good thing <laughs> <laughs> you know i mean let me l- l- it's probably it's probably good in for in a lot of cases but i will just caution us to imagine that it's not it's not certainly not perfect like one of the ways i got into this entire like biased algorithm game is by really listening to the original pitch of uh lending club was it called lending club
0: oh lending club they were they were early on this yeah they were
2: very early and i was on top of them listening to exactly what they were saying here's what they were saying we're going to look at your facebook friends and decide whether you are worth a chance even though fico hasn't found you yet so you know people who without lending experience without borrowing experience people who are young essentially like college students or immigrants um, don't have the credit history required to have a good FICO score, so we're going to find you and we're going to give you loans. Now, who do you think that that privileged? Right, it privileged people whose fake Facebook friends were wealthy people, obviously. So it was like I'm going to give you a hand up, but only some of you. And that was that is the kind of the system I think we should keep in mind when we think um, when we think about uh, who does this benefit.
0: Although, if you look at all of the you know, we're going to do social underwriting fintechs who started up. And a lot of people have made that claim. You're absolutely right about Lending Club. Um, A firm came out of the gate saying it was going to underwrite based on that. Um, Upstart came out of the gate saying it was going to underwrite based on that kind of thing. They're like, we're going to look at your your full social graph, and we're going to be able to predict how credit-weather you're going to be in the future without having to have recourse to a bunch of credit history that you don't have because you're too young, you're an immigrant or something like that. And when you actually look at what they do, they all kind of tried the the social graph thing and they gave it up pretty quickly. Like, it just doesn't actually work that well.
1: Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on creditworthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at applecard.com.
0: This episode of Slate Money is brought to you by Wondery. Wondery And for more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts, with shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more Wondery Means Business.
1: I have just some little things I wanted to make sure I mentioned first. Why is there a crow in the bank? Why does a crow in the bank? Why does Uncle Billy have a squirrel in his home? Little questions. I read online the crow symbolizes death and the bank is going to die. I I, I don't think that makes any sense, but I'm. I'm Oh, I thought you had an explanation. You're just asking us. I'm wondering. Yeah. I think it's because the crow symbolizes like death or something. I think it's also because Uncle Billy is just incompetent, which sent me down a spiral of like working with your relatives and how that, again, puts a business person in an awkward position, but. Maybe the I guess the message of the film is just like there are things more important than business. So you have to keep your ridiculous uncle employed; otherwise, he'll go into a mental asylum. Is the message there? You have to take over your father's business, even though it's not a good business, et cetera, because there are things more important than money and business,
2: right? Yes, I do agree that the argument the the argument of the movie is like there's things more important than awkwardness, right? Like it is awkward. It is a conflict of interest. And yet you do it because you owe it to your family to do it. So it's very, you know, family obligation oriented, obviously. Um, That's why he never went on his trips. He never went to college. Um, And that's a very important aspect of the movie, which I cannot relate to that well. Like I kind of feel like, You know, when my kids are grown up, they can leave me. That's cool. You know, (laughs) like I say that now. I mean, I'm I'm doing fine. Maybe I'll change my mind. And to your point, though, I wanted to also bring up something which which is like, I know we've already admitted that it's communist, but I'll tell you, this is what makes me cry every time. Like when he is at his worst, um, he goes to Potter to beg for a loan of $8,000, which is how much um, Potter stole from his uncle, or didn't return from his uncle. And the thing that Potter says that he repeats to himself a couple of times later on was, I'm worth more dead than alive. I'm worth more dead than alive because he had a life insurance policy that was paying out more than he had than he owned in assets. That's the first, first instantiation of that concept of what is a man worth? And then the second one is the very last line of the movie, I believe, which is like, you're the richest man here. You're the, you're the richest man alive. Which isn't about money, right? It's about his family and his friends coming together to, to care for him. Mary, I
0: got him here from the airport just Mary. as quick as I could. The fool flew all the way up here in a blizzard. about your banquet in New York? Oh, I left right in the middle of it. As soon as I got Mary's telegram. Good idea, Ernie. A toast to my big brother, George, the richest man in town. So
2: I feel like that, I'm crying just thinking about it. That is um, beautiful.
1: Shana shared with us this really good blog post from Lindy West. And I think she points out like kind of just how (laughs) it's pretty clear that George Bailey has a wonderful life. Like we, we, he shouldn't have needed this angel to show him like the, the fact that this, this boy couldn't go on a global trip after he finished working or going to school, like, and his hopes were dashed of having a harem of women, as he explains to Mary in the soda shop in the beginning, like that's not some great tragedy. Like what is he so upset about? Really? It's just such a, the whole movie kind of has this very, like really puts him on a pedestal in a way that's sort of, I don't think would – maybe would still happen now where, you know, he makes big speeches and his desires are elevated, like, are, are seen as just so important that he has to go to Tahiti or whatever. Um, and that's just, like, so so important and he's really, like, suffering as a result is kind of absurd if you think about it. Like, okay, so he didn't get to go on a trip. He has to stay and run a, a business and, and have a beautiful wife who, like, makes a beautiful home for him. I mean, that – there's no really dramatic tension there. It's not so terrible. You know what I mean?
0: Well, <laughs> it's it definitely, I mean, last season we talked about The Fountainhead, right? And the uh, uh, which was like the polar opposite of this movie, which is all about like the, the the singular drive of the individual is the thing that makes America great. And the one thing this movie does a pretty good job of is saying that the singular drive of George Bailey has never been to stay in Bedford Falls and run a stupid building and loan, right? He all he wants is to get out to see the world, to build magnificent monuments, to be a kind of Howard Rock figure, basically. And he needs to give up on his dreams, or he doesn't need to give up on the, on his dreams, but he winds up giving up on his dreams um, for the greater good of his family and his community, and that's the. You know, I don't know if it's communist, but it's definitely communitarian aspect of the movie, right? That he that there's that that there is a loss to him of agency, which is forever, and the, one of the reasons that he never really wants to settle down with Mary is is precisely because he doesn't want to settle down in Bedford Falls.
2: Uh, it's a it's a good question um, about how much how sorry should we feel for this guy, and it's especially when you, and as we have consider his opportunities versus, you know the maid the women in the you know, and yet I would argue that I do relate to him like absolutely I'm not a, I'm not a white guy from the '40s but we all want to have the freedom to have dreams and. We he wasn't asked to be clear, like he wasn't rich. He wasn't asking for money. His you know, remember that line he had was like, Oh, then I'll come back and go to college and see what they know? Like he w- he wanted to like go experience the world. And I think everyone can relate to the desire to experience of the world, even if um they're not given that opportunity. So like that that frustrated uh the thwarted ambition of experiencing firsthand what the world is like is really all he was asking for. And it, and he probably deserved it. And that's what that's what Americans are supposed to deserve. And, of course, every American deserves that. But it, it wasn't like he was, like, on a trust fund or something.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I guess, yeah, that's the frustration. It's like, if only everyone could have been given the chance to, like, have a dream and there had been, like, some empathy for the failure to achieve that dream. Like, Mary's dream is, what, to be with george in the haunted house like she's not really allowed to have a dream where she gets to go explore like she even tells him at one point he's like why do you want to marry me or something and she says because i don't want to be an old maid and like of course she's like joking but i honestly don't think she's joking that much because like that's what you had to do back then otherwise you become an old maid and like everyone looks down
2: on you whatever that phrase old maid was used (laughs) it was weaponized i would say in that
1: yeah like i'm like women people of color like they weren't allowed to have those kinds of dreams like they wouldn't have dared to well maybe they would have but a movie wouldn't have been made about it
2: all i mean to say is that like we should instead of shitting on this movie because the white no. guy got to have a dream we should just be like everyone deserves that dream right like we should yes. lo- raise the level rather than yes. lower our levels
1: Yes. Everyone deserves a dream. And I also cried at several points in this. Thank you.
2: Thanks. That's amazing. all I'm asking for. Felix, did you cry? Felix, Felix.
0: I cried. We you all cried.
2: I think my son cried <laughs> too. So It's so
1: nice. I forgot just how like delightful it is. Like when they're dancing on top of the swimming pool and it starts to move and the crowd is roaring every time they get close to ah, the edge. We're
2: dancing too. I wish we still knew how to dance.
1: Oh yeah. I loved it so much.
0: So Emily, you can tell us having watched the swimming pool scene twice. Yes. How does it compare? Oh. If you watch it in color. Oh
1: right. Oh right. So I I like Google, I got my Amazon out, I called up this movie and I just started watching it in color not even like thinking about it. My husband looked over my shoulder, he's like, "I thought this movie was black and white." I was like, "Who cares?" And then I said to Felix <laughs> like, "Oh, I watched the colorized version." And he was horrified and I was shamed. So I went back and, and watched in black and white. And um, it's it's better in, it's better in black and white. I mean, it looks weird. The colorized version does look weird and the lighting is strange. Um, but I still cried and everything and enjoyed the film a hundred percent. And if I show it to my kids over Christmas next year, I probably might show them the colorized version just because I feel like young kids might like that better. Like they might appreciate not appreciate black and white the same. But a hundred percent the lighting and the the way things are staged and shot makes a lot more sense in black and white for those of you who care like Felix.
0: I care because this is, we are meant to be talking about movies here and movies are visual things. And And, and, and one of the, you know, one of the things that definitely struck out stands out to me, the way that our, our heroes, George and Mary are just like stunningly gorgeous movie stars. And then the the sort of goofy, you know, Uncle Billy or heaven forfend, like Mister Potter, they are just like not good looking. All of the other suitors for Mary's attention are kind of nerdy and you know, there is this kind of conflation of being good and being good looking. Does seem to happen in this movie?
1: Well, what about Violet, who's apparently like the town slut, right? Who is redeemed by George <laughs> Bailey? She looks, she's attractive too, and it's not nec- She's not necessarily one of the heroines of the film, right? She has got a more kind of give and take there. She's more of a gray area character, right?
0: That's true. It's true. And, and, she's, and she's, the, she's the avatar in, um, she's like the little hint in um, Bedford Falls of what might befall it, it were it to become Pottersville. If you squint at her, you can almost see in her red lipstick that she leaves on George Bailey's cheek. The the licentiousness and and you know, sinfulness that might befall this wholesome town.
1: One one question I had about the communist message and the community message was: if community is so important and significant, why would the removal of one person ruin the community? Shouldn't the community be able to?
0: Good question. I will say that Bailey Park and. Uh, lovely post-war houses that he's building there and the whole institution of a building and loan are very capitalist, right? They're houses that are bought with capitalist loans, with capitalist money and built with, you know, George Bailey is a property developer, which is a very um, capitalist job to have, Um, makes a decent money, makes a decent living doing it and probably earns more than most of the people in town, except for Mister Potter himself, and and that was like that was the dream of America in the post-war era was really this idea that that you could harness capitalism in the service of building a middle-class lifestyle, and that America would be a nation of martinis, basically, um, which I think is. I think it's oversimplifying to say that it's communist. I mean, it really is. It's capitalist. There's a lot of capitalism going on there. Um, And it seems clear from the movie that Potter could have done it himself. Like They could have got a mortgage from Potter's bank as easily as they got a mortgage from the building and loan, were it not for the fact that Potter was conflicted by being a slumlord, and he wanted them to keep on paying their overinflated rents in the slums, um, and he didn't want to lose that income.
1: Is George Bailey a proponent of stakeholder capitalism, Felix?
0: (laughs) So one of the other things that was really fascinating about this movie is that it wasn't commercially particularly successful until the studio somehow by oversight, let the copyright lapse. And then it entered the public domain in 1974, and then it appeared on television every Christmas, and then everyone started to love it. Is that right, Emily?
1: That is absolutely correct, Felix. Bless you for knowing the, per- the history to the-, to the finest detail. But yes, after 1974... All the network TV stations were like, hey, we have this free, heartwarming little movie here. And they ran it all the time. And the whole country fell in love with this film. I remember watching it. I would just put it on the TV growing up, and there it would be. It would just be on, and it was kind of like fun, and everyone knew it. And now it's an instant classic.
0: Which raises the question, why isn't it available for free on Netflix?
1: But Because it's available for free on Amazon.
0: Well, it's actually not available for free on Amazon in ireland i actually wound up having to pay for it but it seems like a freebie for netflix no like there's no reason why they shouldn't have it and i'd love to know why they don't have it
1: yeah oh that's an open question if people know they should email us because i don't know the answer
0: yeah slate money at slate.com why doesn't netflix have it's a wonderful life given that it's in the public domain
1: it's not like netflix has all the public domain films there on it
0: why not but that—that's the but question. That why wouldn't? Why wouldn't they?
1: And it's, but it's interesting to me. Like, had the copyright not lapsed, would this film not be something everyone watches every year? Would it just have vanished into the black and white hole of history? So, in, I don't.
0: Right. It would be something that like Michael Beirut would pull out of the memory hole and be like, "Oh my god, this is a classic. Who knew?" And we'd be like, "Wow."
1: <laughs> it would take our podcast <laughs> to popularize this film. Actually, that's what would happen
0: but we would do it right and you would come out and you would give it top marks
1: oh absolutely what a terrific what a terrific little film we've got here i really enjoyed it it's 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 heartwarming it's ridiculous it's anachronistic but like at the end of the day super entertaining and and warm like gives you warm fuzzies in in the best way
0: i i have to say i agree i i don't want to agree because i'm you know a natural contrarian and if the two of you are saying how much you love it i i'm just going to be like well you know i've got to find a reason to hate it but i can't you know i'm my my rubber soul was melted by this darn corn dog of a movie and um i'm slightly ashamed to admit it because i don't think of myself that way but i it's true it's a genuine classic uh thank you for kathy for making us all watch it again
2: it was a wonderful movie and thank you guys so much for inviting me to talk about it i really appreciate the opportunity
0: Yeah, thank you for listening to this here show. We will be back on Saturday with a regular slate money.